Circular Firing Squad. I'm Marty Gensius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and host for Circular Firing Squad. We've got six members, six questions, and six answers for each question. Questions are generated by each of the squad members and run from the fervent to the feckless. Let's see who's with us in this episode. Hi, everybody. I'm Mitch Conrad, a graduate counseling student at Cleveland State University. Hi, everyone. Elliot Ingersoll, um, professor of counseling at Cleveland State and host of Apply Topically. Hey, everyone. Gina Martin, assistant professor at University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. Hi, all. Eric Perry, clinical faculty at Southern New Hampshire University and co-host of the Tech Savvy Professor. Hey, everyone. Jen Cook, associate professor, University of Texas at San Antonio. And Mitch, you're up with the first question. Sure. Let's uh, get started. My question for everyone tonight is, what was your first published research article about? This is great. This one took me back. Um, my mentor, Ansel Wolt, he and I did a paper called Where uh, Where in the Yang Has the Yin Gone in Gestalt Therapy? And we there had been multiple comparisons of Gestalt therapy with Eastern philosophies. And we broke those down and we noticed that Gestalt was like trying to nudge their way into that kind of empirically validated treatment that Oh, that God, we're all supposed to get down on our knees and worship, you know. But um, we also, he knew, I, I can't remember the Mandarin pronunciation. It might be Shenglang, Al Huang. He's a Tai Chi master. And he did the pictographs that we were allowed to use in that paper. So it was a, and, 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 and Al Huang, if you love Alan Watts, he was the person who finished Alan Watts' last book, uh, Dow the Watercourse Way, because Watts died of a heart attack. So there was a really nice connection and it felt like, it was totally me because I got into my doctorate and I was like, if I can't study what I want to, I am out of here. And Ansel, he was just a brilliant mentor. And that was that was our first effort. Still proud of that one. Well, that's awesome. I uh, thought it was one thing. And then I had to go back and look. And factually, my first one was something that I completely wasn't expecting. Um, I had worked with a student in a different department in my PhD program. He was in couples and family. Um, and I just somehow tagged along on this article about music utilization and couples conflict. And that was actually my first article ever published. And I, I really probably couldn't tell you all that much about it other than that I contributed to the lit review. Um, and then I did some of the analysis at the end and it was a really interesting article and I was definitely the second author. So that's what it was. Yeah, my experience was somewhat similar. I definitely was not first author. Uh, did a lot of the lit review and legwork on a uh, an article about primers in the use of uh, in training in mental health. Um, so I did that at Presley Ridge while I was there, um, just getting ready for doc work and and trying to learn kind of the ropes. And um, I had no idea I was on it until probably two years later when somebody gave me a heads up that my name was actually there. Um, so it was really neat to kind of find that out later. But um, I, I feel like I should have known it at the time. Still, it's a good experience. My first article was conceptual, and I was first author on it. Uh, one of my master's professors, uh, Dr. Shruti Polson, who is an absolute genius, had an assignment called 
um, the publishable, publishable journal article or something like this, like that we had to write a manuscript in the midst of our couple counseling course. And I wrote about using the gen- using photographs with the genogram as a form of assessment and counseling. It's not research. It was a, it was a conceptual piece, but that was my very first one in the Journal of Systemic Therapies. But my next um, one was also as a master's student and that was empirical. And that was with one of my master's professors, uh, Dr. Carlos Ippolito Delgado, um, also at the University of Colorado, Denver. And he brought us in, uh, three of us students, both as participants and as researchers. And it gave me the bug, um, to be completely honest. It was about our experiences with something called the Multicultural Action Project. And so that was my first empirical publication. And it came a couple of years later um, after the conceptual one. But both of my master's professors were really influential in, in promoting that and participating in it. And that's been something I've done. They, it was just very influential to me. And when I was only working with master's students initially back in my first job, I brought them on and I had students as first authors and it was really cool. So anyway, sorry, I'm going on too long because it's something I feel excited about. Um, mine is 1979. I was an undergraduate and working in a neuropsych lab. And do you remember the uh, the Harry Harlow uh, uh, research from? Of the wire monkey and the cloth monkey. Yeah, with the rhesus monkeys, right? Right. Well, macaques. Yeah. And um, we had Harry Harlow's monkey's brains. And what we were looking at was brain development in various parts of the brain based on their experience. And I was working in the lab just collecting data on dendritic branching and um it's Greeno floater Sackett. Gene Sackett was out at the Primate Center. Uh, Gensius and Kraft, who I think was also at the Primate Center. 1979 experience and macaque monkeys brain development relationship to primate isolation, isolation syndrome, uh, aggressive behavior uh, from 1979. And so, yeah, I didn't even know, like Eric, I didn't know until years later that I was on that article. And since had found since then had found a second article that came out two years later on a different piece of uh, research that I was working on in the lab, or at least collecting the data for. Well, cool. Thank you, everybody, for sharing your answers. I know that I got published earlier this year for the first time with uh, Dr. Stacey Lee Tom and Dr. Sungbin Oh on uh, a human trafficking article, and I know that like that experience has been really rewarding and like consequential for me, like going to OCA, presenting at OCA, doing a poster at OCA, like, um, you know, now pursuing, you know, trying to be a first author on something uh, that I've been doing for, I feel like I've been working on like an article based on something that we did at Cleveland State called the Teen Mental Health Summit, where we've got, where we had 400 students, 400 high school students come in and talking about like what it looks like to implement a program like that, or like a day like that. Um, So just uh has been like i don't know it it, it seemed kind of i was reflecting on on it on uh like writing after coming back from ocn i was like oh yeah this seems like such a cool thing to think about the first time that you wrote an article right my question is how would you radically overhaul a career counseling course well yes um obviously not try to get them a publishable manuscript after that um i think that 
This was a great question. I, I've never taught career counseling, but I did one of my um, internship experiences in my doc program at a career counseling center. And I was surprised at how rewarding that type of work was and at how closely career work is often tied to identity. So I think I would shift a lot of the focus to identity, um, obviously add a large self-reflective component, self-awareness and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And I don't know, I don't really subscribe to many of the career theories, but I think that there's probably a small place for that in the class. Emphasis on small. Okay. So I, I actually kind of like career. It's it's one I like to teach, but I like to teach it kind of in my own way. There's things that you need to know for national exams. So a, a lot of the data that you'll find out there is that the, the NCE in particular, they tend to put these career theory questions on there. So there's a lot that I like to to cover just to make sure that kind of content is there. But I think there's a lot more to be able to access for students to start that conceptual process, to start applying theory in kind of a safe way. Because career is light. It's happy. There's rainbows. There's there's shapes. There's all kinds of different things that you can jump into. Uh, it's not heavy in any kind of way. So if you're going to start conceptualizing and applying theory, this is a really safe way to do it. Uh, I, I love the thing that I love about this too is that there's a lot of kind of modern adaptations. So I teach a, a section of it on um, career uh, counseling theory, chaos theory. Um, there is a chaos career theory uh, that a couple of psychologists actually in Australia have authored, um, which is really cool to start to tie in, especially if they've had theories already and they've started to look at some of these postmodern things. Uh, I think there's a lot of fun that you can have with it, um, that it can be a really light place to start. Uh, conceptualization or even building kind of conceptualization skills without that kind of stress and heavy topic kind of stuff. Well, I've never actually taught the career course. Uh, this is one of the very few um, courses that I've never touched in any sort of way as a faculty member or as a doctoral student. Um, however, I'm working with a colleague um, out of New York right now. We're putting together an, I an IRB to study how he has transformed his career course um, from a social class perspective, uh, Dr. Walid Sami. And I have to tell you, like, that definitely gets me going. I think you all know my love for social class and my uh, real uh, passion for trying to help people to understand how much it influences our decision making. And so when he told me um, that he had structured his career course this way, and he wanted to collect data and try to understand it better, I jumped on it because I think that there's really something to this because social class plays such a role in how we understand ourselves, how we understand our world, um, an inequality oppression type of structure of who is, um, you know, keyed up early to go into the advanced placement courses and who's college ready. I, by the way, was told I was not college material. So I think that I would take a play out of his playbook, to be honest, if I were to teach this course and really take that social structural approach to understanding it. I mean, we've got to get the theories in there because students are going to be tested on them at the national level. But even critiquing those theories from a class perspective, um, and P.S. I even critique the one social class worldview model that's out there from a class perspective and think it's classist in some ways. So, you know, I think that we we can really 
do things in a way that can be meaningful and to understand ourselves better. I know that's been talked about already, but really, I think that structural approach would be right up my alley. I got to agree about the testing thing. Um, NCE covers a lot of theories, some of which people just graze over. And also then labor statistics. And, I, you know, that's not necessarily helpful. So I think we, we've got to get back to the practice of career counseling. I would suggest that if you want to revamp it or if I were to revamp it. We used to, when I took career counseling, we had to give an assessment to another classmate. Then we had to videotape us giving that assessment to another classmate. Then we had to videotape us giving the results. I'm saying videotape. Videotaping the results of the uh, giving the results to the to the classmates. So it made us make it much more applied. Ironically, when I got my first job, I ran back from my meeting with the place that had given me the job, and I said to my chair of my dissertation back at my old university, you're never going to believe what they're going to have me teach. And he said, career. And I said, how'd you guess? And he goes, because they give that to all new first professors and nobody else wants to teach it. Their, uh, their understanding of why I was qualified to teach that course was because I had worked in EAP and had dealt with a lot of job loss and a lot of downsizing and having to work with people who had just been told the job they've been working in for 20 years is not going to exist anymore. That's the kind of, I think, preparation in a career counseling course that should be going on, because that's what you're going to deal with in a clinical setting. It's, you know, I think career has got a lot of wonderful things about it, and it's, you can set your life goals, you know, as long as you have that kind of entitlement to do that. But it's got some really nice, warm, fuzzy things, but it's also got some difficult things that generally our clients are driven in to to speak with us about. Yeah, this is this is something that I, I've thought about since taking the um, the initial career course um, in, in my program. Um, one of the challenges was it was it was online um, and in the summer. And so we didn't have an opportunity to get those. Uh, like practical experiences in class with other classmates talking about something like role plays, practice counseling. Like I think the more people are able to insert themselves into that role and practice instead of just listening to like just hearing about the theories uh, is going to serve them well in the, like in their counseling career. Although obviously I think everyone's talked about how important it is for the NCE, right? There's a lot of um, relevant information there. I think that, you know, I, I can think of my own counseling, like when I go and most of the time in throughout my life, one of the consistent themes has been talking about like what I want to do with my life, cultivating meaning and purpose. And I feel like career counseling can, it's like, it's right up that alley. Um, and so I, I just think there's always spots for people to like, you know, I know someone was talking about like doing an assessment in class, right? Sharing it with a share, uh, working on it with a classmate. Like there are practical things I think that we can be doing to not just learn about like the, you know, the theories themselves, but also like how you would apply it inside of a counseling room because people do go to counseling and they do care about, you know, their jobs and their livelihoods and what it looks like to have a purposeful career and stuff. So, but it's still challenging, right? Um, I think everyone's mentioned here that 
career is not the first class that everybody wants to teach. Um, and so, you know, I think that just comes with some challenges. Well, I, I thank you all because uh, this is one of the things I kind of think in my dotage I want to take on because I'm like, man, if I was trying to apply for a job now, I'd like to take a person who's hearing impaired, a person who's ambulatorily impaired, and a person who uh, maybe isn't thinking as straight as they used to because maybe they have long COVID. Because I'm like, I I had good career counseling and I taught it and I, I really liked it, but I always thought, wow, could you imagine, I don't know, what was that guy, Jesse Davis and Frank Parsons, if you dragged them out the grave and brought them back to life and said, hey man, it's the 21st century. We've got these kind of computers. They can do all this thing. And uh, we're still talking about y'all in career counseling. They'd be like, you should up your game. That's just my thought. Maybe not. But I'm like, you know, I th th I think it's a very old fashioned class. Now, no offense to Donald Super and John Holland. And I agree with everyone. Yes, we have to teach the theories. And it's, my thing is, though, OK, as Jen brought up, I'd like to take a social constructivist critique of those theories and say, well, OK, you know, uh, most of us know when we're three or four years old, whether we're artistic type or scientific type, we do. Was There's me that I choose on the carpet, and then there's the other kid who kind of looks at the patterns on the carpet. Those are two different kids, two different career philosophies. That's fine. But yeah, we got to add to it. And, and I would also say, when I interview students for our program, I find I can generally feel them sorting into one of two categories, and I'm not uh, oversimplifying oversimplifying this with bifurcation, but some are very strategically focused. And they're like, look, here's what I'd like to do with my life. Here's the career. Here's two careers that I think will help me get there. And I'm like, wow, excellent. Let's talk. And then there's the other person who's like, I don't know. I read the faculty uh, profiles. I listened to some of the podcasts. This really feels like a good fit for me. And I'm like, well, that's your more intuitive student. But I would love to teach career like, okay, intuitively, I got to tell you, it is. I, I know, I'm sorry, Marty, it's a long show, but I'm going on too long. I had this customer on my paper route, Mrs. Ritz, and I was a paper boy. I don't know. Was I, I, I got the route in seventh grade and I kept it till my sophomore year in high school because I that's a good gig. It was like being a milkman. And I kind of phased out of that because I like to sleep later. Anyway, Mrs. Ritz, I saw this dear woman later and I was her paper boy. I cut her grass for like a decade. And she says, oh, Ingersoll, what are you doing? And she was a teacher, old school teacher. But I said, oh, Mrs. Ritz, I'm getting a master's in counseling. And she looks at me like this. She kind of looks me up. And she looks me down. And she says, that makes sense. You were always a weird kid, whatever that means. But it was like, I always felt seen by her. I'm like, no, she got me, Mrs. Ritz. Don't expect I'm going to cut the grass at the same height at the same time. That may vary, but I'll cut it. She was like that kind of person. Anyway, I've, I've strayed a bit from my answer, but I, I would love to have a career course where you can kind of think about people who are cognitively oriented, people who are intuitively oriented, people who really can think strategically and people who are like, crap, man, I just got to get the rent paid and I need a next step. I'd love to have something that spans all of those spectra. Elliot, I know you think you're Canadian, but I'm pretty convinced you're Southern because you got to tell two stories to get to one point. So just FYI. Southern Canada. There you go. It all comes together. Um, okay, so my question is very much self-serving. Um, do you get burned out with grading? And if so, how do you get back into it? I absolutely love grading all the time. <clears throat> Nothing better. I just give it a beat for anybody who cares that's listening. 
yeah, no, I definitely do. I, I I feel like I have some advantages in that regard. So I, I teach primarily online. Uh, and even when I don't, I, I need to vary how I give that feedback. I think just, uh, you know, sometimes it's it's cathartic somehow to sit down and, and notate a paper with a pen. Uh, and other times I like the video part, you know, I'll scroll through and record a video walking through someone's submission um, and record. I think that varying how I give the feedback um, and the types of assignments is really helpful. So in a course, like I, I, if it's too writing heavy, I get bored uh, and sometimes frustrated. If it's too just assessment heavy or reflective or whatever, I need a good balance. I don't, I don't, and sometimes I wonder if, based on the content, if that's the design that all the courses should have this kind of variability. Um, so I know some lean into content and some are more f- reflective, and there's a need for that. But when I do hit that kind of wall, I'll try and vary the feedback, and I feel like that helps. Uh, and then, you know, I, I have all kinds of different strategies for just getting over the tedium. It can be tedious, it can be just a, the, a heap of things to do that that feels rote and monotonous. And for that, it's usually music. You know, I need to have a good playlist. I need to have a good background or something going on. And I need to take breaks pretty regularly or else I'm going to zone out. And my productivity and quality just dive. So when I start to see that happen, I know I need to do something a little bit different. Well, when I get burned out with grading, I'm going to tell you what, it's my own damn fault. And there's two ways that it's my own fault. One is that I have assigned something I didn't want to grade. Um, and that's happened to me before. Uh, Gina, we've talked about this offline when we were talking about your syllabus for the fall. I was like, do you want to grade that? Um, because I don't wouldn't want to grade that, much less grade 40 of them. No, that sounds horrible. Or I've gotten on, behind on my timeline. So my timeline is always students get their papers back within a week of turning them in. And that's really, for me, as much as it's for them, because if I just have unli- unlimited time, like I will find something else to do. So if I get burned out, like last week, I was finishing my book um, with Maddie Clark to go for developmental review. That meant that I had to grade 24 papers in one day to meet my deadline for grading. And it sucked. Um, but that was, it was kind of my own fault, but kind of not, I mean, you know, it was one of those things, but I was like, the deadline helps me and it helps me not to get burned out because I know I do better if I grade six this day, six, the next, you know, spread it out. I can binge grade, but I don't like it because then I have to stop and like take hip hop breaks or take, you know, a little, little ABBA break, you know, I have to take another shower, you know, whatever. I come up with all kinds of ways to take breaks. Um, but by and large, I, I usually structure it so I don't get burned out, but usually if I do, it's because it's my own fault. And frankly, that first one about assigning something you don't want to grade, I, I learned that lesson and I'm like, well, I'm not assigning this again because this was a biatch to grade. It's just not going to work for me. Yeah. Jen, you and and I have kind of a similar kind of patterns. It's like, I got to get it back the next week. I I don't want to delay it any further. and. You know, I've looked at, I've inherited some syllabi from instructors while I've taught their courses when they're on sabbatical. And I've looked at what they have as assignments. And it's like, no way in hell am I grading that. I I, I don't want to assign it. I don't want to read it. And I certainly don't want to grade it. Um, so then I change it to an assignment that feels much more like me. And, and that makes it a little easier. But I try to 
do some things like, uh, it's always the thing I don't want to do. So uh, that's the first thing on my list in the morning, because I know I will get it done to a point and then I'll stop and go on to some fun stuff. Or I'll set some guidelines the night before to say, if I just get through three pages of everybody's exam, then tomorrow morning, I've only got three more pages of everybody's exam. So it doesn't seem so unbearable. So I parse it out that way. And um, I also put familiar things on in the background, whereas Eric listens to music, I will put on a movie, something that I've seen a gazillion times or you know, run something on the screen on, uh, that's, you know, an old movie that occasionally I look up to see what's going on, but I can, can keep my focus, but I've got to have some multi modal input in whatever I'm doing. So do I get burned out with grading? Well, I think I have the great fortune of being a student right now and don't get a chance to do any grading. So, um, I suppose in the future, I'll be very interested to see how I feel about it. If I do go into, if I do pursue my doctorate, um, because then I uh, would like to teach and would then feasibly like to grade. Um, and so I, I suppose I'll get back on, I'll get back to you on that in uh, whenever that happens, but I don't do any grading right now. No, these are great answers too. And I, that's what I love about this podcast. I always get new ideas because I mean, I love John, your point. Yeah, man, my first I was a visiting professor for two years. And the first year I was tenor track, I'm like, we're going to do papers. And then I spent more time editing and like, it took so much time to edit. And then other people would say, well, send them back to the students. I'm like, no, that wasn't the deal, you know, but like, then I'm like, okay, that's maybe not a great assignment for 500 level classes. I do get, I geek out on like, you, you know, we can't compare a class outside of itself. So I use an item analysis curve because the difficulty level at graduate school is supposed to be 0.5. So if half of the people or more than half miss an item, it's a shite item and you just chuck it out. And I'll give everyone the points because it's like, there's always a few people in the class who got it right. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to punish you for that. And then they have a buffer going into the next thing, but I love to see those distributions. And recently I had, I had a class that, you know, there was a couple of things, a couple of classes where I just thought, wow, that's so different. And I compared them. I had like one was DSM. So it's like since 2013, that material hasn't changed a lot. But I noticed that there was a real difference in, in a one class performance in a year. And I was like, well, that's interesting. You know, and then sometimes I'll talk to the students about it. Sometimes I won't. But I really love that stuff. And so that's why I keep all of my midterm and final distributions year to year. And then I figured out how to, you know, overlay them and you can kind of look at the patterns. But that to me is incredibly helpful. So, yeah, I kind of geek out on grading, but caveat, I know what not to assign. I think that comes with time. I this semester for me, I um, have not experienced grading burnout to the extent that I have this past two weeks, really. Um, I had to grade 19 hour long recordings and then I had all of the research papers and I was like seeing stars by the end of it all. I was like, oh my goodness. And I do the same thing where I have, you know, deadlines for myself. I usually try to turn papers around within the same week so that by the next week when the new assignment comes in, I don't have any others hanging over my head. Um, and this past, these past two weeks, it just didn't work. And I hit an all new low of burnout where I was like, I don't even want to open my computer <laughs> to look at another paper. I am done. 
And what I found really helped was ignoring it all and binge reading one of my favorite novels for the second time. And I rarely ever reread a novel and I have loved it. I find myself laughing. I find myself smiling. I find myself tearing up. It's just been wonderful. And then I just have to push the rest of it to the back of my mind for the moment and enjoy the novel. Well, Elliot gets an extra story. So I want an extra story it's real quick. I, I And I know she's she may or may not be listening. I got uh, a paper that I wrote in one of the last classes that I took during my graduate program in the mail around October, uh, the first year I started my doc program. I mean, if you let that sink in for a minute, I got it in the mail, in a, in a package in the mail three or four months later. So I never feel that bad. Like I want to hit that weak timeline, but if something comes up or something happens and I got to go a day or two, I don't feel terrible because I still have that, that paper in here that I received about four months after I got my final grade. In any case, I have the next question. Regardless of the holiday itself, how early is too early to decorate? Oh, I'm very judgmental about this, y'all. I, I, I really feel like if a, another major holiday is not over yet, you can't start bringing out the next one. It, it's, it's just common courtesy, okay? Like, we have not had our candy corn yet. I don't want to see the damn trees, okay? It's not hard. Like we can at least have taken our little jack-o'-lanterns down before you start throwing up the lights and the balls and the Christmas trees. It, it, it's really not that hard. We haven't even seen a turkey yet and y'all giving me Christmas wreaths. No. So my two cents is that you got to get through the major holiday before that until, and then you can start advertising the next one. I mean, this is where we could really use some feckless advertisers. I, uh, I'm all with you on that one, Jen. I wrote down, the only note I wrote down on this uh, question was two weeks in advance. Anything more than two weeks in advance, forget it. And, you know, so we're driving around this weekend, Aileen and I, and we noticed that the Christmas lights are already up. I thought, wow. So I said to Aileen, you know, we could put our tree up now. And she was like, no. I said, wow, we could put our tree up. And then, you know, when Christmas is over, we don't even need to take it down. We can just throw a sheet over it and pretend it's not there. Two weeks, no more. So I just have to admit defeat at this point because there's a day this year, October 13th, when I saw Christmas lights up in my neighborhood. It is October 13th. It's not even Halloween. And I've just gotten to the point where I I've lost. I've clearly lost. And I'm not going to like win this battle. I mean, I want to go and I want to take my neighbor's Christmas lights down. I want to throw them in the garbage, but I know that I can't because I don't have the police come to my door. But I think it's like it's borderline, I think, immoral to put up Christmas lights on October 13th. It just it's it it drives me. It, it surely drives me nuts, but I just can't. I can't win. It feels like it's earlier every year. And I can't believe I'm sitting there like October 13th. I'm like stopped in the middle of the road. Like there's people behind me. I'm just like, I cannot believe these people put their Christmas lights up. And I, I live, I live near these people. It crazy to me. It's too early, two weeks. Boy. So Mitch, I'm assuming those, those lights are lit up, eh? Correct. Those lights are super bright. Yeah. Unpardonable sin. Cardinal sin. I agree with you 100%. 
I agree with Marty. Two weeks would be nice, but I'm also like, I feel like I'm dealing with the provost again. I'm like, it's not rocket science, all right? You have pumpkins and people in costumes. When the costumes go away, put your Halloween no stuff away and put your Thanksgiving stuff up. Now, here's a big one. If you're not from the States, that's fine. But when the turkey's done, if your Christmas stuff was up early, God bless you. But don't light it up until after the turkey's done. How hard is this? How hard is this? I'm like, I'm horrible with time and I've got this. So then I'm like, I don't know, New Year's, whatever, snowflakes, crystals, all of that's good. And then and then we just have nothing. We kind of have Martin Luther King Day, but that's more of a different holiday. That's like Labor Day, kind of a downer when you think about what it's about. But then after that, well, well, Valentine's Day. So I, I have nothing more to say on this. So Elliot. What you're saying is after the turkey's done, I can take the sheet off the Christmas tree in the living room. I, that is totally correct. And I would, I would support you in that effort. Okay. So I live with the Don and the Don would love to put up the Christmas tree. November one. I am totally against it. I, I don't know why I torture myself, but every year I throw a Halloween party for Millie. And every year I wait until October 29th or 30th to go and buy all of the things for said Halloween party. And then by the time I get to the store, it's a whole Christmas fest and I can't find one thing for Halloween. And so all of the kids that come to my Halloween party receive little goodie bags that have different items because I can't get enough of the same things because everything's gone. And I don't know why I do this to myself every single year, year after year, I wait until the last minute. And then I always forget that they have totally blown past Halloween and Thanksgiving. And we are just entering into a winter wonderland that I don't want to be in. So then after that party happens and I'm exhausted and I'm cleaning up and I've got all these mismatched party favors, the Don literally this year, he brought up Christmas ornaments and has set them in the living room. And I'm like, no. We're not doing it. I can't do it. We're not doing it yet this year. And yet the ornaments are there mocking me every day. So that's where we're at. House divided. I know a good attorney, Gina. It's the ultimate passive aggressive. I'm just going to leave the ornaments here. Right. My neighbor is either a genius or a madman. I I don't really know which. He's really into Halloween decorating. So the, the whole front lawn is like those... 12 foot skeletons and you know grave headstones and smoke rolls through while the kids trick-or-treat and i mean he's into it and instead of putting those away at the end of halloween he just redresses it so you have thanksgiving zombies and christmas zombies and the lights turn different colors so they're not green anymore they're orange And, you know, I I mean, the whole thing is really well thought out, um, but atrocious to look at. I mean, it's, it's really uncomfortable, right? So my mother comes through and, and, you know, it's, it's kind of a circle. You have to kind of go around to get to my house. And and she looks at me really concerned and said, is, is your neighbor? Okay. I'm assuming. So I, I think he's very happy with what he's created. I haven't asked and I don't plan to approach it, but I'm I'm kind of with Mitch here. It hurts me physically to see. So I was just curious if others had thoughts. I'm 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 on the two-week train. Two weeks. 
All right. I, I want to dedicate this question to somebody very special to me before before I get started to my my dear friend, Dr. Eric Perry. This question goes out to you. If you could transform any part of the counselor education curriculum into a musical, what part of the curriculum would it be? I got to tell you, I live you know, near Cleveland and there's Cleveland Playhouse and we get to see the national stuff that's coming through. And frankly, there's nothing creative in musical theater these days. Well, okay, Elliot, don't give me that look. There have been, you know, basically they're rehashes of the structure of a chorus line where everybody comes up and sings their story. Everything, you know, so whether it's their story in the fifties, whether it's their story trying to get into a, a Broadway play with, it, you know, it's a line of people who come step forward and sing their story. Uh, I've seen some great work over the last year. Town was just remarkable, but we're not seeing that. We're seeing spinoffs of popular movies brought to musicals. So when you ask the question, what part of counselor education could go into a musical? I think dissertation defense. It would be, you know, the soloist starting at the beginning, trying to figure out whether they're going to make it or not, if they're going to be successful. And then the stoic professor steps up and talk, you know, there's a, there's that. And then there's a Greek chorus of people who are, you know, singing support or whatever, but the whole dissertation defense, I think could be a two and a half hour musical. All right. I like how you were saying people, the idea about people like stepping forward and like sharing their stories. I feel like this is, is pretty relevant actually to career counseling. And I think that Dr. I, if you're talking about what is the uh, radical way to overhaul a career counseling course, it would be making it into a musical. So now that's that's my that's my answer to that question is actually just to make it into a musical. There you go. That's quite a fine answer with some depth. I'm going to reflect on that. I love this question. And I love that it was dedicated to Eric, whose love of musical theater got every week before the show. We have to talk him down from like, no, we're not going to do a chorus. No, we're not going to have individual song lines. He's just like, and as a thespian, I love it, but it's just not for everyone. Anyway, yeah. So it would be etiology. I mean, the whole lack of etiologies for any mental health disorder it would be etiology. We don't know what the hell it is. It's etiology. And that'd be like, well, that right there. Now there's a Broadway production. You can go into the brain. You can go into the hormones. You can go into the circadian rhythms. You can go into the sociocultural context. And I'm talking like I'm, I'm thinking of Martin Short and only murders in the building. I'm talking big show. Oh my gosh. These are fabulous. I am. Um... The one that immediately came to mind for me was practicum. I can see the initial anxiety and like the anxiety could be like a whole separate being. And it's just taking over the stage, you know, coming in on both sides and like kind of like a ship. I um recently I love some of the old like Greek mythology and they put together some music for Odysseus. And I think it's fabulous. And this is totally like a nerdy thing. Um, you know, to go into Greek mythology, but I can totally see that for practicum. And every time I listen to it now, since reading this question, this is what's going to be in my mind, the anxiety of practicum. And then, you know, the main character starts to come forth and have confidence. And then they're shot down by a client who tells them something. And it's great. I think it would be fabulous. 
Yeah. And there's like a whole darker kind of Greek chorus tugging him down every step of the way. But he perseveres. He perseveres. (laughs) It's the Western democratic ideal of the individual for love's sake. Perfect. Uh, Jen is clearly mad at me for something. And we're going to have to talk after the show. Because I feel like this was just to hurt my feelings. Which is fine. I'll get through it. I, I engage in my own therapeutic work. I, I don't know. Thinking about the question, I, f- I feel like the interview process, right? That master's interview process or doctoral interview process would be great. There's a lot, a lot of tragedy, a lot of, uh, I don't know, tears. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I've had this really weird experience myself, but I, I feel like it, it was really rough and emotional. There's people crying in hallways and, you know, it's just, it's such a strange experience, especially if you go somewhere that's selective. And, you know, I, I found when I, I interviewed for mine, it was, there were like 60 people there. They were taking 30 and we were doing the whole lifeboat exercise and nobody knows how to answer. There's no right answer. You know, there's just people kind of staring at your group process and you don't even really know why you're doing what you're doing. So I feel like there's there's a lot that could happen there musically. I love that idea. I also love the idea of putting them into the interview process and making them come up with a musical. That's completely on the table for me as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so I would love it to be the helping skills series. Can you imagine like empathy? It's the same as sympathy. No, it's not. I mean, there could just be such great with all of the with all of the different helping skills and how they play out. Having little client vignettes that felt like advice, but I asked for permission. I mean, it just could be really it could be really fun. And in fact, like your ideas, everyone's giving tonight. I feel like we should legitimately write one because you know if they what was that Netflix series that was the professor the chair the chair is what it was called. You know. I'm just saying we could we could really have a go, make a few bucks, because I'm going to tell you, writing books, publishing articles, that ain't where the money is. And you should take a look at, uh, if you really like musicals like Eric does, you should uh, take a look at uh, Schmigadoon in Chicago, uh, which is on Apple TV. It's a it's a satire based on musicals. And uh, if you're you you like musicals like I do it in my heart you'll appreciate how well they satirize uh, those types of uh, musicals. Anyway, I guess I get the last question and there's a story behind this. I get a story. Uh, Every Thanksgiving, we go to my sister-in-law's have a great time with the family. The little kids kind of drive me nuts and I have to, I, I get out of the talent contest the night before by cooking the day after. So on Friday, I get to cook a meal. And every year I'm challenged with coming up with a new theme for a meal. And sometimes it's places I've been, countries I've been to. This year, I came up with this idea based on the fact that I had had a meal that I later heard was a a favorite dead celebrity's favorite meal. So I found a book called The Dead Celebrity Cookbook. And I am putting together courses of different dishes, and I'm not going to tell my relatives that they're actually eating dead celebrities' favorite meals. They're not eating dead celebrities, just their favorite meals. The piece de resistance for me is the fact that um, I have Matthew Perry's favorite dead meal. 
And uh, I'm going to call it, it's the one about uh, grilled cheese sandwiches, uh, which the kids will get, which I mean, actually adds a little more of a twist into it because I'm giving them one of their favorite meals, but they don't know it's a dead celebrity's favorite. So my question comes down to this. What dish do you enjoy making? Yeah, so my mom is a uh, wonderful baker, and that's really the only, you know, that's the cooking skills that I inherited with from her are like specific to the baking. I, in terms of like cooking like large meals, that's, it's a bit out of my wheelhouse, um, but I do really enjoy like the first thing that I really started wanting to cook all the time was pulled pork. Um, I like that it's kind of like a day long thing where, um, you know, you've got it slow cooking and you can adjust, like you can adjust and go back. And it's kind of like this little experiment to make it different and taste different or taste good, you know, taste better in a different way. Like I, I like the kind of experimentation, um, that you can have with like dishes like that. That's, that's what really gets me into the cooking as opposed to the baking. Yeah. I, for me, I, I think hands down my uncle Jack's Irish stew and, uh, it took a while to learn it cause he was usually kind of half in his cups when he was telling me how to make it. And I think a few ingredients would get left out and the Jameson might get doubled, but it was, a. It, it, I loved what Mitch just said because it was like, it's an all day affair and you, you take lamb. It doesn't even have to be a good cut. Not, 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 not your best cut. It doesn't even have to be a good cut. You're going to cook that thing so long nothing your teeth are just gonna melt right through that because i mean that's the way he grew up you eat everything and he had all of these things you add to the stew but it's it's about eight hours and uh when when my uncle jack was in his cups i was the one who was finishing the thing and i was like never quite sure if i was doing it right but you know he was always very supportive when he woke up and I, I still love that dish to this day, as well as his soda bread. The man could bake as well, which people would say, how is that even possible? And yet, there we are. Explains a lot about me, I suspect. Yeah, I don't cook. I uh, just don't. And so I don't really like it. Um, but if I had to, and if I absolutely had to make something, which I did once for our neighbors when we had just moved in, they came over to our house for a dinner. And, you know, I was like, I've got to cook something for this. I've got to like, you know, play the part, right? And I've got to be the good neighbor um, who cooks. I don't know why that's important. Probably my Italian heritage was coming through in that moment. <laughs> and so I decided to make my great aunt Marie's gnocchi. And I've done that before. I did it with her like a whole thing. It's a whole day process, which I really don't love you all. I know you're talking about having this whole day affair of cooking and I just hate it. Um, so I'm making it and I'm going and I'm trying to cut corners. So I'm like trying to go a little quickly. And, you know, she was also Italian and she was highly protective of her recipes as well. And so similar to your uncle, I'm sure there were ingredients that were left off. And so what ended up happening was instead of making a lot of little gnocchis, I made one large, very large gnocchi um, for all of us to share at this neighborly meal. And like, we didn't really know them. And it was like kind of gooey. I don't know. 
it just wasn't good. And they were trying so hard to be nice. And they were like, yum. This is you know, good. there's a reason they're small. <laughs> <laughs> there is. There's a lot of reasons they're small. And this was not one of them. Um, they were, it was, it was so bad. And now we're really good friends with them. And now they know my secret that I don't cook. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so we uh, we talk about that and we laugh now. And someone else does the cooking. Gina, I, I'm laughing, but I have the same level of culinary skill. So, you know, I, I really shouldn't. Uh, so my mother, for the most part, was uh, she's not a cook. Okay. And and raised primarily by a single mother. She was really good at the take the film off 350 on high for 15, 20 minutes or whatever the case may be. So we we have the story that we talk about. So she'd work during the day. We were latchkey kids. We come home and she decides she's stressed. She's going to make dinner and goes with grilled cheese because it's easy, right? Kids love grilled cheese. You can make it. it. Takes like 15 minutes. She makes it, runs upstairs to take a shower and like rest or whatever and my brother and i are sitting there eating our our or trying to eat our grilled cheese she just forgot one of the ingredients and there's only really three right and and that's bread and cheese and butter so we had our grilled cheeseless and said nothing right which is just two pieces of buttered bread um so around here because i know i won't screw it up i have that memory so fondly attached to my childhood uh, I make the grilled cheeses and ensure they are not cheeseless. That's my role. Oh, Gina, bless your heart. I'm still dying over here. I'm just like thinking of this group gnocchi, like it's like a pizza. And I, I cannot get that image out of my head. So, whoo, um, got to dial it back. I, I almost feel bad that I like to cook after these last two stories. Um, I have been cooking my whole life. I always joke that I don't know when I learned how to cook because my mom always had me in the kitchen with her and she was always telling me what she was doing and, you know, so on and so forth. So, you know, I, I love to challenge myself by cooking things that are new or baking things that are new. I think that I've talked on the show about the stolen, uh, because that has, that was such a triumph learning to make, make stolen and make all of the ingredients that go into the stolen, the candied fruit, the marzipan, the whole nine. I've been very proud of it. And I'm, continuing to repeat it. I've done it two years in a row and I'm going for year three this year. Um, but I always love it when people say, oh, I haven't had such and such in so long. And it's something that I have no idea how to make, but I'll say, oh, why don't you come over? I'll fix it for you. And I know you're not supposed to make something new for the first time when you have guests over. That's sort of like Emily Post's like, you know, main rule about like cooking. But most of the time it turns out okay. And when things don't turn out okay, here's where my geek mentality comes in. I love to analyze what happened of like, oh, was it this or was it that? And my mom's so funny because I do this sometimes when I'm staying with her for Christmas and I'm fixing something new and she tries to come in the kitchen and give me advice. I said, I haven't asked for any advice. I need to sort this on my own. I need to like get through it and understand. But I think it would be easier if I'll ask you if I need help. Like it, it becomes like this like battle of wills of the only child who thinks she can do whatever she wants and that mommy doesn't know best. And she's always right at the end of it. She's like, well, if you just want to listen. And I'm like, I didn't know I was screwing it up and I didn't want your opinion, you know? 
but at any rate, I love the challenge. I love doing new stuff. You know, I watch the Bake Off every week when the episode comes out just because they do things in ways that I've never heard of or they'll they'll have something I've never heard of because they use different terms. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a cookie, you know, or whatever. But that's I love to cook everything and I love to try new stuff. Jen, your process sounded like CSI cuisine. It pretty much is. And sometimes it probably tastes about as good as what goes on on CSI. So just ask, ask my friends and family. Uh, this cookbook that I'm playing around with, it's got some uh, uh, it's got some recipes in there I'm not going to do. Generally, though, they're all very bland recipes because they come from like Lucille Ball and Dean Martin and and folks back in the 60s and 70s when cooking was really bland. To answer my own question, what dish do I enjoy making or cooking? It's got to be omelets. And I think it's only because it comes from that. When I first learned to do my own cooking was when I was living in an apartment by myself and I was far away from a grocery store without any easy vehicle to get over there to buy stuff. So I went over there on a bike and rode over there and got my bags, bagged them all up and carried them on the bike back to my basement apartment. So every morning and every day it was, let's open the pantry and see what's left in there that I can combine into ingredients. And that was the nerdy science part of me too. And for me, that's what omelets are. I wake up in the morning. It's like, I know I'm going to have eggs. Let me open the refrigerator and open the pantry and see what interesting things I can put in an omelet. It's not going to kill me. It's all food. It might not taste the way I thought it would taste, but it sure is fun to figure out what I can put together for that purpose. So uh, omelets. We've got a final shot question, which is, uh, you know, baseball season is over. I'm desperately looking to watch some baseball already. And I'm trying to find, there's got to be a country in the Southern Hemisphere where it's summer and they're playing baseball and they're streaming it and I can't find it. But my question is, and the final shot question is, what's your baseball walk-up song? Yeah, so I'm going to go back to 1959, I think, with this one. One of my favorite uh, songs of all time, which is Money, That's What I Want by Barrett Strong. Also, maybe something that you would use when going and talking to a provost or president at a college for, you know, any specific reason. So that's a provost that walk-up song. That too. Yeah. When I, go, when I go to that office, yes. No, that's a great answer. And yeah, I know that song inside out. I can I could sing the bass part. I could sing the, the, the guitar part. I can do the lead vocal. And I can, I can smack myself on the head and stomp my foot about the drum part. Good choice. Mine would be Going to Hell by the Pretty Reckless. Okay, so I, I saw that this was like a hype-up slash intimidating song. So mine would be Sound of Silence. You know, it starts, hello, darkness, my old friend. That would be kind of fun to walk up to. But- I'm going to go with Kendrick Lamar, Humble. One of my favorites. You know, I, I realized, you know, I know so much music, and I was trying to pick something that didn't have a really long lead in. And I realized that so much of the music that I love has these long intros. Um, So this was really challenging for me. And I landed on Tom Petty's Running Down a Dream. Just to be clear, Jen, I was right with you because the intro 
to going to hell is bum 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 ba da ba da ba da da bum 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 and there's like eight bars of it and it's this. You know, I uh, I tried to put that criteria in there of 15, and that's what I read about them, 15 to 30 seconds long. You should be able to get the hook in. I went through a ton of them. Thunderstruck by ACDC, Uncontrollable Urge by Devo, uh, Hammer to Fall by Queen, and Shipping Up to Boston by Dropkick Murphy. But I'll tell you, everything that gets me in the baseball mood is center field by John Fogarty. And I know they play that at baseball games, but man, that starts out with such a hook. I'm ready to get into baseball. Thanks to the firing squad, Gina, Eric, Jen, Elliot, and Mitch. Look for some of these characters on their podcasts on the podtalk.net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Make sure and check out the Tech Savvy Professor podcast hosted by Eric and myself. Our theme music is from Menaja Quad, Real Swing Shet. That's it for this episode of Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, paint.